Okay, well, that is actually a lot more complicated than might uh, might seem at the beginning, just, you know, a superficial glance. Um, now, for an Australian audience, what is difficult to understand is this uh, Gulen organization. I'm sure it would have been in, in the Australian media, um, but, but there's nothing quite like that, either in Australia or, or, or anywhere else, um, in, uh, anywhere in Europe. Basically, the nearest equivalent I can think of is something like maybe the Jesuits. It's, it's a religious brotherhood. It isn't a sect. It's an Islamic brotherhood. Um, it has a, a, a real material social basis in the sense that members of the brotherhood, and we're, we're talking of hundreds of thousands of people, help each other out. The brotherhood itself has schools and universities and halls of residence for students. So lots of um, religious poor people would send their kids to these schools and universities and the kids would stay at the halls of residence. Um, of course, the, the education they're given is normal, secular education, just like anyone else in Turkey gets. But, of course, there'd be a heavy religious um, element to the education as well. Now, it has been a long-standing fear of the secular wing in Turkey that these people, this brotherhood, was penetrating, infiltrating um, the bureaucracy, the state machinery, and attempting to take over the state and turn it into an Islamic republic of some sort. So th this, this fear goes back several decades. Um, I always thought this was an exaggerated fear. Um, I, I may have been proved wrong. Um, so that's one thing which is a little bit difficult to understand for a Westerner, if I may call Australians Western. <laughs> sure. Um, well, you are to the east of us, so... <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, but, but there is that element. Then, again, something which is, which, you know, takes a little bit of effort to get your head around, is the division in Turkey, the long-standing division, between the westernizers, the modernizers, the, the people like me, people who've had, not in the sense that I'm a westernizer, but in the sense that um, you know, people who've had a Western education, speak foreign languages, uh, consider themselves to be part of Europe, and on the one hand, and people um, whose outlook on life is much more religious, and of course there's a spectrum there. There are... Um, a number of people in Turkey, not very many, 
um, who, who would like to see Turkey become a, a, an Islamic republic. Um, but at the other end of this religious spectrum uh, would be people who, are, who define themselves as believers, and that is an important part of their lives, um, nevertheless are perfectly happy to, to have the sort of regime we have now. This polarization has been a very strong element of Turkish society for 70, 80 years. So, the state in Turkey is run by um, what we here call Kemalists, and that expression comes from the founder of modern Turkey in the 1920s, Kemal Atatürk, um, who are basically, you know, these people control the state. They are strongly Western in worldview, uh, quite strongly anti-religion. Um, and because they control the state, um, religious people, people who wear religious uh, uh, clothes, uh, who look slightly different from uh, what you and I are, uh, would wear, um, have basically been excluded from public life, from the levers of power, from um, even getting work in the public sector. So, these are the two elements which would be different from anything that happens in Australia. You place the emphasis there on the state repression against Islamic people or politically Islamist sections of society, but you yourself are a writer, poet and activist. Speak to us about your own personal experiences in this climate of political repression under Erdogan. Okay, well... Again, I mean, I always feel I feel it necessary to to underline when I talk with foreigners, non-Turks. Um, okay, it's a repre- it it has become an increasingly authoritarian and quite repressive regime. Um, not not in any sense to do with Islam. Um, that's important to understand. Um, but secondly, yes, it's repressive, but on the other hand, um, I'm a member of a revolutionary socialist party, I've, and I've never been in prison. We produce a weekly socialist newspaper, which we sell openly in the streets. It's never been closed down, and, and we are able to sell it in public. So, yes, it's repressive, but the repressive ten- the repression tends to be a little bit selective. If you're Kurdish, then you are much more likely to go to prison. If you're a Turkish um, oppositionist, um, a socialist, or whatever, um, it, it, you don't necessarily suffer um, very much repression. So the the case of the thousand plus uh, academics um, who've been who've all been prosecuted and it's it's been widely publicised, certainly in Europe. I don't know about um, Australia. 
um, now about 1,200 academics, many of them have lost their jobs if they're in um, state universities, um, and they've all been prosecuted, um, and they're all Turkish, not Kurdish. But the point is, they signed the petition calling for peace um, in the Kurdish uh, question. Mm. There's basically a low-level uh, war go going on in Turkey between the Turkish armed forces and the Kurdish movement. So th they, these people signed a petition for, in favor of peace. So, again, it, they're being prosecuted, and it's utterly um, senseless, undemocratic, and repressive, but it has to do with the Kurdish question. So, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it's easy when one looks at Turkey from the outside to think that it's like one big prison. Actually, it's not. You know, there's a struggle goes on. Um, there are strikes, there are demonstrations, all sorts of things, all of which we're involved in. And uh, sometimes you might suffer for that, but quite often not. In my particular case, as I say, so far, so good. You know, I've, um, nothing's happened to me. Coming now to the 24th of June elections, Erdogan secured 52.5% of the presidential vote and his AK party 42.5% of the parliamentary vote. Were these, as Liberals like to say, free and fair elections in your view? And what is the political significance of the result? I think the elections were um, basically free and fair. Now, two, provide, two problems, though. One is there is a party in Turkey which is basically a Kurdish party, although it tries very hard to be more than that. It's a sort of leftish party, um, and it does attempt to be a party not just for Kurds, but for the Turkish a sort of left social democratic party, if you like. Um, now, thousands of its members are in prison. Its uh, chairperson is in prison, very charismatic uh, man who stood for the presidency last time round and got uh, around 10%. So... Um, for them, certainly, the election was not free and fair. Basically, they had to run their election campaign largely from prison. So that's, that's one problem. Um, but as far as all the other parties are concerned, there was, there was no problem. And as far as the election itself was concerned, uh, it does appear to be the case that there was no cheating or stealing of votes or anything like that. So, effectively, yes, the, the election was okay. I think they have been in the past, too. Although, every time, there's always this uproar about... Uh, there's an expectation that the elections will not be free and fair. Um, but my view is that, by and large, they have been. 
In 2013, in a kind of great afterwash of the 2011 protest movements around the world, the Gezi Park movement erupted in Turkey. It spread from an initially modest demand to save a public park in Istanbul from destruction to a nationwide revolt against the Erdogan government. Five years on, it seems Erdogan's grip on power is more entrenched than ever. What prospects are there, in your view, for the left in Turkey, indeed for democratic civil society more broadly? Um, well, at the moment, there's an atmosphere of absolute demoralization and despondence here um, in the left. And in, you know, anyone who's opposed to uh, Erdogan is deeply depressed at the moment for obvious reasons. I mean, this man has been in power since 2002. And... Um, he still personally got 52%, and his party got 42%. So these are very high figures. On the other hand, if you look at the election results in, in any more, in, in greater detail, um, first of all, um, he got 52%, but the, his party, the AKP, is in alliance with a, with a small, effectively it's a fascist party, it's an extreme right party, which usually gets between 10 and 15% of the vote. So Erdogan got 15%, but only with the help of this um, uh, extreme right party. And the AKP, Erdogan's party, got 42%. Now, um, in the general elections in 2015, in November, they had 49.5%. So they've now lost, this time round, they lost um, 7.5 percentage points of the vote they had three years ago. Now, that indicates that although he and his party seem to be extremely successful, they've actually lost votes. A serious, it's, that is something like three and a half million votes. So there's a degree of, a serious degree of um, unhappiness, discontent within the ranks of the AKP. Um, the question then is, why do they still vote for him to be president? And the answer is, there isn't much of an opposition. In Turkey, the, the main opposition party, um, which claims itself to be a social democratic party, um, is very nationalistic, somewhat Islamophobic, um, not really recognizable by any, say, European voter as a left party. But in Turkey, that is the party which everyone considers to be um, the, the party of the left. And it's the main opposition party. So for any AKP voter who's unhappy with, um, with Erdogan, um, the, the alternative isn't particularly attractive at all. This has been a problem here all along.
So I would think that the AKP voter who's unhappy and discontented would go to the voting booth and think about it and in the final instance think, all right, I'm not happy with Erdogan, but um, what am I going to do? This other party's no good either, so what the hell? I'll vote for Erdogan. There's very much an element of that. So that's one. Secondly, all the problems which, which um, made Erdogan call this early election, mainly an economic crisis, um, I was about to say on the horizon, but it's actually now closer than the horizon. Um, so that he thought he'd get the election out of the way before the crisis um, hits well and truly. Now, winning the election doesn't make that go away. So there's, there's a serious economic problem, a serious period of economic instability awaiting him. Then there's the problems within his party with the people who are not happy with the party's policies. So things are not um, rosy for, for anyone who's opposed to him, but they're not particularly looking very good for him. Turkey appears to be engaged in a strategic tug of war vis-a-vis its membership of NATO and loyalty to Washington on the one hand and its new orbit fragile alliance with Russia on the other. And the crucible for the strategic tug of war is Ankara's involvement in Syria. Talk to us about Turkey's trajectory in terms of its foreign policy, particularly in relation to its involvement in the Syrian war. Well, um, the involvement in the, Sirius, in the Sir- Syrian war, uh, which is absolute lunacy. I mean, it, you know, you don't have to be a great political analyst to see that. Who the hell wants to get involved um, in in the mess that the Middle East is at the moment. But the reason Turkey has got involved is that northern Syria, um, which has a long border with Turkey, is basically inhabited by Kurds, Syrian Kurds. And uh, as no doubt um, you know, um, the Americans have been using the Kurdish forces in Syria as the main um, military force to fight ISIS. So the Kurds have been in a good position from their own point of view in the sense that they have American support, they've been very successful against ISIS, and they have effectively been setting up a Kurdish state in northern Syria. Now, for Turkey, which has been fighting a war with its own Kurds for 40 years or so, to have a de facto independent Kurdish state on the other side of the Syrian border is completely unacceptable from their point of view. That's the reason they've got involved in Syria. Their main um, task, their main target in Syria is to stop the Kurds, the Syrian Kurds, from setting up their own state. Um, 
Now, the Americans for a long time wouldn't let the Turks go into Syria. In the end, they had to turn a blind eye to a very minimal, very, very limited Turkish incursion into Syria. Um, and so the Turks have gone into parts, uh, a small part of um, Syrian Kurdistan, but they've stopped. You know, clearly they're not allowed either by the Russians or the Americans to go any further. But it does mean they've got embroiled in it, although to a limited extent for the moment. Um, that that's the background. They've the Turkish government has been getting increasingly angry with the Americans for not letting them go into Syria, and that explains why. The government has been making openings to the Russians and trying to get better relations uh, with the Russians, and they've succeeded in doing that to a certain extent. Nevertheless, I mean, my view is they're on very thin ice, very dangerous ground, because at the end of the day, the Americans and the Russians have to reach some sort of agreement in Syria about the future of Syria, about what's going to happen in Syria. And at that point, neither the Americans nor the Russians will give a damn about Turkish interests. So, so far Turkey succeeded in the Syrian adventure, succeeded in the sense that, you know, they're there and they're a threat to the Kurds. But in the medium term, God knows what will happen, and I don't think anything particularly good or pleasant can happen.